Hello again, and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me, as usual, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. It's been an interesting week, Simon, not least with the events that have been happening in the United States. We had this rather extraordinary so-called debate between uh, President Trump and Joe Biden, uh, more of a kind of playground spat, I think you could say. And uh, after that, we had the surprising news, perhaps, that uh, President Trump has contracted the coronavirus, which could have some global implications, but as yet it's not clear what they will be. But in market terms, what have we been seeing this week, Simon? Well, the markets have been a little skittish, it's fair to say, this week, but they look as if they will end in positive territory, or certainly the UK marketplace, probably about up 1% or so on the week. And actually, the investment companies sector slightly ahead, uh, though saying that America is still trading and it's still uh, hopping around the place. So we'll see how that ends up. In terms of the sector average discount, that's narrowed a little bit, started the week wider than a 7% and probably will finish uh, nearer to a 6%. But again, it's fair to say there are still pockets of value out there, some some pretty wide discounts across the uh, the sector. I was looking at the graph that we put on the website uh, showing the average investment trust discount over the course of the year. Uh, and it is fairly extraordinary in the sense that it's really has traded in a range for quite a long time, for several months now, after the initial impact and then the bounce back when discounts came in again. And it really does seem to have been trading in a relatively narrow range, somewhere between 5 and 10%, and perhaps a little narrower even than that. Is that a surprise to you, given that we've had uh, you know, quite a volatile year? Yeah, I think that masks what's actually going on at a, a subsector level. So if you look at the UK, for instance, particularly UK equity income and UK small cap, then obviously there was a big derating in March and then a subsequent recovery. But actually, we've seen a slide again since then. So discounts on UK funds have widened out. Uh, in other areas, they've probably tightened in a little bit. So we've talked quite a bit about um, private equity and commercial property. Uh, and certainly in the case of the former, discounts have, have narrowed there as uh, NAV valuations have come out. And actually, it hasn't been quite as bad as perhaps it might have been. So there are a lot of moving parts to the investment trust sector, as we know. And even though, as you correctly say, that we, we, we kind of range traded at an aggregate level, um, on an underlying level, there have been areas where we've actually seen discounts widen over the last two or three months. Which, having mentioned what the UK market's been doing, it is rather impressive or surprising, depending on your point of view, that we have seen in the last few weeks, not one, not two, but five different IPOs being launched, and all of them are for UK-based investment trusts. So perhaps we could just have a reminder, us a quick rundown of who these five are, and, and then perhaps a comment about why you think we're seeing all these UK launches uh, at a time when the UK market is so weak or relatively weak? You're right. It, it perhaps is a bit surprising. I mean, it hasn't been a bumpy year at all for IPOs across the investment trust sector. There's only been one so far this year. That was back in February, and that was for a Japanese fund, the Nippon Active Value Fund. But then to have a whole host towards the end of the year, all focused on the UK, though it is fair to say um, within the UK, different asset classes. So we have um, triple point, for instance, uh, that's looking very much at uh, infrastructure side. Uh, we have home REIT, uh, which is looking at uh, providing accommodation for the homeless. But we do have a number of funds more focused on the listed UK market. For instance, we've got the Schroeder British Opportunities Fund, which will be a hybrid fund. So that's public and private investments. 
We have the Telworth British Recovery and Growth Fund. They're looking to raise at least 100 million and that will be in listed companies. And then also the, the Buffetology Fund that we talked about last week. And again, uh, my understanding is that will be focused on the listed market. I think in the case of those last three funds, it's very much the case that they believe there is an opportunity set within the UK marketplace that there are a number of companies, both public and private, that do require financing for pretty obvious reasons to get them through this particular moment in time. Um, but fundamentally, they are sound businesses, but they require financing, and that that's the opportunity. So I guess for a number of those mandates, and we talked about this last week, the idea that there's an, kind of almost an altruistic element to it, that uh, you're helping these businesses get through this time, but equally at the same time, uh, on the medium to long term, they should turn out to be good investments. Let's just quickly talk about the kind of way that this process works uh, for an IPO. They're all targeting, you know, some figure north of 100 million. Some of them have put it up a range in it. The Buffetology Trust says its maximum capacity for its uh, strategy, which is basically small cap, is going to be 500 million. Well, that would be great if they get that much. I doubt they will get that much initially. But what's the process? I mean, we've got five IPOs, each looking for about 100 million. So that would be uh, 500 million plus, And they're obviously hoping for more. What's the sort of psychology behind the way that you decide to launch an IPO and how you fix the target numbers? Yes, I think it's more an art than a science. Clearly, it will depend on the, the asset class or perhaps the pipeline of investments. There's no point going out to try and raise a whole bunch of money and then struggle to deploy the capital. But equally, if you, you set the target too low, if you only uh, wish to raise 50 million, then frankly, there are a lot of organisations that will turn around and say, sorry, that's too small, even though we might like the asset class or the investment manager or the opportunity if it's too small, we simply can't get involved, which is why that you find many of them being a minimum of 100 million or aiming for 200, 250 million from the outset, because that ticks a number of boxes. It allows the institutional investors or the wealth managers as well to get involved. And yet it also clearly depending on the asset class, but it gives the people raising the money enough scope to get that money to work in a relatively short order. Yes, and of course, we'll see whether that is successful or not. The other thing that people always say about IPOs, or at least they tend to say these days, is that if you're going to try and raise money in the market now for investment trusts, you've really got to come up with something which is a little bit distinctive. You can't just have another kind of copycat of a, something that's already being done in an open-ended fund or you know, it's facing competition from an ETF. You've got to have something which is a little bit distinctive. And I guess uh, most of these new trusts that are attempting to launch uh, could at least claim that. Is that is that a fair comment, do you think? No, I think that is fair. I mean, to a greater or lesser extent, clearly, depending on the particular funding question. But yes, you have got to offer something different. Or equally, if it's something similar to an existing thing, then that thing has to be quite in demand at the moment. So clearly, there are a number of mandates or strategies that are uh, very much in demand at the moment. And so if you can replicate that or maybe add something just slightly different, then that will probably get traction as well. But difference is good. And it's one of the reasons why I think in the investment trust space, we have seen a whole range of asset classes and strategies come to the market over the last five to 10 years. And we've talked about any number of them over the last few weeks. Um, but it is that range, I think, that makes the sector so interesting. With the exception of the triple point trust that you've mentioned, which is looking to invest in energy efficiency projects, it's notable that we haven't seen many IPOs in the alternative asset space this year, that we've seen a lot of secondary issues for some of the more successful trusts. Do you think we will see some more IPOs in that space in the coming weeks and months? It is a possibility. Clearly, it is a subsector, an asset class that investors do want to get access to. And that's reflected in the fact that many of those funds, if not all of those funds, are trading on quite significant premiums now. 
However, I think one of the key aspects here is that the experience over the last five years or so is that investors seem to prefer following their money, i.e. for existing funds that are up and running, um, that have kind of got money in the ground, have built a dividend track record. There is a preference to, to back those names uh, as and when they wish to raise additional capital. So a good example this week would actually be Greencoat's UK Wind, which raised £400 million uh, in an oversubscribed equity issue. I mean, they have been hugely successful in building out that portfolio, most recently with the Walney uh, offshore wind farm. And that has been a huge success story. But going back to the time of their launch, the first, whatever it was, £170 million they launched at the IPO was, was quite hard work. They're now sitting on it with a market cap of not too far off £2.5 and not that many years further down the track. So that, I think, is reflective of, the, the A, that they've done a good job for their investors, but investors have been prepared to back them as they've grown the portfolio. And so it creates larger and more liquid companies and more diversified as well in terms of the asset base. Yes, if you can get from uh, zero to uh, two billion, that is uh, pretty impressive for a new fund to get to that level so quickly. Uh, and of course, it means we then have more bigger investment trusts in the sector, and that will create more liquidity and so on. And that's uh, that's generally a positive thing. But I think it does demonstrate, as you say, not just the fact that the investment trust market attracts some interesting projects, but that actually they can become very successful very quickly in terms of the asset size. Let's move on then to talk about some corporate activity that's been going on this week. Let's start with an interesting one. This is really more of a kind of side note in a way, but uh, let's talk about what's been happening at Pacific Assets. That's P-A-C. What's happened there, which is uh, somewhat unusual? It is an unusual one. Basically, we learned this week that KPMG, the investment trust auditor, has resigned after technical breaches of the Companies Act regarding the rotation of auditors. And it's it's probably a little bit one for the investment trust Anorax, to be honest. I mean, it's nothing for shareholders to be too concerned about. I think it's fair to say, basically, an internal review by KPMG themselves discovered that at the time of the last tender process, and under companies law, you have to go through a tender process with your auditors every 10 years, that there was a timing discrepancy, which meant that technically, KPMG had been appointed by default for an 11th year and therefore breached the Companies Act. So as a result, KPMG have stood back, uh, resigned. Um, the, the, there appears to be no uh, implications that they, in terms of their audit process, acted without uh, independence or objectivity. Uh, and so life will go on for all concerned. But it is an interesting one. And it just goes to remind us that the, you know, when we talk about investment trusts or investment companies, they are listed companies. They are subject to the audit process, uh, whether you have much faith in the world of audit, it still is a very important part of the process of ensuring that uh, when we look at things like net asset values, particularly around the time of the um, results, interim results and annual results, then we can have quite a high degree of faith in what they tell us. Yes, I think I would endorse that. Most of the auditors do a, a good job and they're a sort of second line of defence, if you like. It's not a trivial matter if you're on the board of an investment trust and the auditors uh, in their report, which they have to make, as you say, under the Companies Act uh, report to some issues, then you have to take very serious note of them. And for the shareholders, of course, that, as I said, it's a second line of defence, if you like, though it only always happens on an annual basis. Let's move on and talk about a trust called Strategic Equity Capital, that's SEC, where they've produced some results. And there's also, I think, uh, some other news around that trust. 
That's right. So they announced their annual results for the year to 30th of June, and obviously a difficult period for everybody, but certainly not a disastrous set of results. Their NAV total return was down about 9%, compared with a fall for 12% for the FTSE small cap. But possibly of more interest is that there's been a change to the investment team. Ken Wooten, who is head of the Gresham House public equity investment team, he's actually been appointed as the lead fund manager. Jeff Harris, who'd been involved in running that fund since 2016, uh, is actually leaving the business. And this follows a move of strategic equity capital to Gresham House back in March this year. Previously, it was run by an outfit called GVQ Investment Management. So it's an interesting one in as much as um, Gresham House is uh, run by a chap called Tony Dolwood, who actually launched Strategic Equity Capital back in 2005. He was the original manager. So this fund has, has come home and it has resulted in a change of the investment team. You might just remind us what the strategy that Strategic Equity Capital pursues. It's not a, a straightforward, simple equity uh, investment trust, as uh, we know from some other sectors. What's their approach? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, they do have a different take. So effectively, they're invested in UK smaller companies, but they take a private equity type approach. So they're listing in listed companies, uh, but the, the way that they analyse companies and consider their investment case, it was as if they were private equity buyers. So there's a lot of focus on, on balance sheets and also a high degree of um, corporate engagement as well. And that's certainly an approach that Gresham House and their public equity investment team are, are very familiar with. As I said, there is a connection there with Tony Dolwood. And it's uh, quite similar to um, another investment trust, Odyssean Investment Trust, have a similar approach as well. So it is something that we see in a couple of investment trusts. And I think it's reasonable to point out that the manager of Odyssean is, is the former manager at Strategic Equity Capital, the, the fund manager anyway. Uh, is that right? That's absolutely correct. So so he moved on uh, and set up his own business a number of years ago. So he preceded Jeff Harris. So there's a gentleman by the name of Stuart Widdison. Okay, we'll move on. Might just note in passing the announcement this week by uh, Troy Income and Growth, uh, one of the equity income trusts, but one that has obviously not changed its manager this year. There are a few. What have they been saying this week? So Troy Income and Growth declared their fourth interim dividend, and that was in line with 2019 level. But what they have said is that because of the present economic disruption, it's almost certain that the board will seek to reduce the dividend to a sustainable level uh, from which growth can resume. So in other words, it is very, very likely that the dividend will be rebased or cut, depending on your preferred terminology, sooner rather than later. And to be fair, they had made this clear before. I mean, they've mentioned about the current economic disruption, but it's more reflective of the investment approach with an emphasis on total return type prospects rather than just buying or investing in companies for the purposes of their dividend. So that, that kind of represents the way that they're, they're running that portfolio. So I'm afraid it'll be a few years before they qualify for the AIC's Dividend Hero list, from which we've seen one or two departures this year, as we talked about last week. Another trust that's uh, been in the news for a slightly more technical reason again, but let's talk about that. That is uh, Witten Pacific, where we've heard this week the outcome of the tender, which is all part of the process of the change to a new manager. Can you fill us in on that one, Simon? That's right. So Witten Pacific announced a few months ago that they'd appointed Bailey Gifford as their investment manager, and they intended to adopt a China growth investment approach, so investing in companies listed in China. As part of that 
move, they decide to hold a tender offer for up to 40% of the issued share capital. So as you say, the results are now in and actually 26% of their share capital was tendered, so i.e. less than the, the upper limit. And why is that important? It means that the fund will shrink in terms of its assets, um, but it will go down to about 170, 175 million or so, certainly based on the, on the latest NAV. And also it allows those shareholders who wish an exit to depart that you're not left with any shareholders uh, trapped on the, the register. So it appears that they have moved to Bailey Gifford. The ticker has certainly changed, though we haven't quite got round to having a name change yet. Uh, and uh, we understand there's some uh, delay just with Companies House at the moment, given uh, the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So I guess it is worth just elaborating on one point about that, which is Bailey Gifford, if you like, the Investment Trust Manager of the Year. I don't think anybody would dispute that in terms of both their performance of their trusts, as we'll see a little bit later, uh, and in terms of their success in winning new mandates. So why, if you were a shareholder in Witten Pacific, would you not want to change to Bailey Gifford uh, China, which is, is basically what it's going to become? Why do you think a quarter of the share capital has uh, voted not to go with Bailey Gifford in this particular instance when they're, you know, you imagine that people, most people would think that they're performance going from here it will be quite good if it's anything like they've done in the in the past in other regions i think because obviously we're seeing a mandate change this is going from a asia including japan mandate to uh, a china mandate now clearly there is some overlap but for people looking to allocate to um, the pacific region or even wider then that possibly doesn't work i think possibly the other factor here as well is that witten pacific had been trading out on a discount for some time and that had attracted in a number of uh, institutional value orientated investors who clearly were attracted to the discount. Now obviously the discount has uh, disappeared or the tender offer has allowed them to exit at around NAV and so that's actually quite an attractive exit, quite an attractive liquidity event for that type of investor who really try to seek uh, their alpha through discounts tightening. So I think it suits all parties involved. It cleans up the register. It means that it would be predominantly in the hands of retail investors, which is true for a number of Bailey Gifford funds. Uh, the institutional guys get to, to head off into the sunset, having made, I'm sure, a good return on this one, particularly since the announcement of Bailey Gifford's taking over as manager. So I think it is a good outcome. And as I said, the asset base uh, will decline as a result of the tender, but that's still a reasonable slug for Bailey Gifford to start with. And I'm sure they will have ambitions to grow it through regular issuance uh, if they can sustain their premium rating. We now also perhaps ought to mention, at least in passing, another trust, one of which I have some uh, direct knowledge, it has to be said, because I am one of the directors on the board, and that is Jupiter UK Growth, J-U-K-G. The board has put out an announcement this week. Uh, perhaps you might just summarise what we've said, and then uh, I can make a brief comment on that, and we'll take it from there. So this week, the board have announced that they're considering liquidation with shareholders to receive cash or possibly a rollover into another investment vehicle. And that's a reflection of the company's size. Uh, the market cap at the time of announcement was about 26 million. It's, it's crept up a little bit. And I think the feeling was on the part of the board that given that size, they're unlikely to attract significant new investors. So hence the desire to either go for liquidation or to allow a, a rollover into another vehicle. And there's going to be an update no later than the Investment Trust AGM in November. Yes, it's very sad, as we've said before, when investment trusts come to the end of their life. Obviously, there's a steady supply of new investment trusts, but there's also a process on the other end of the scale. 
And uh, if you are a small trust, and this uh, trust which I'm a director of has always been a relatively small trust, and we have, as a board, struggled over the years to uh, make it a relevant trust for the current market. We changed the manager uh, four years ago and had a high hopes that performance would improve. But in reality, the performance has been disappointing and that manager has now left Jupiter and is no longer the manager of either the trust or the open-ended counterpart of our trust. And of course, we decided to appoint a new manager at the start of the year, which we thought would see us through the difficult times that might be coming. But in practice, uh, we made that announcement a few weeks before the virus-inspired market sell-off which has had a further detrimental effect on the size of the portfolio. And before the new manager, Richard Buxton, could take over, the size of the trust has shrunk even further. And I think we have to recognise that it uh, will be very difficult to grow it from its current size. I mean, some people say that, uh, you know, boards are always very reluctant to put themselves out of business. I don't think we've had a problem with that as a board. We've done what we think is the best for the shareholders in this option. And we invited shareholders to give us their comments about what they would like to see happen next. There will be an opportunity, assuming that shareholders back the board's proposal, to vote for liquidation and to accept cash, if effectively, for their remaining shares, or for a rollover into another investment vehicle, which is a common process when boards decide to put their trust into liquidation. So our brokers who are numerous, not winter floods, I have to note, are looking at some options for rollovers. We've had a lot of interest from a number of companies and We will be making a proposal about that in due course and putting that to the shareholders to decide. So they have the final say over whether they want to take cash or whether they want to stay with the rollover option that we will be putting forward. So moving on, one fundraising we haven't mentioned so far is Merion Chrysalis, which is in what is called the um, growth capital sector, I believe. What are they proposing to do and uh, what can you tell us about that? I should mention that Merion Global Investors has become part of Jupiter since in the last few months, uh, which is something where we had a bearing on our deliberations at Jupiter UK Growth. But what's what's the story with Merion Chrysalis? So they announced this week that they are looking to raise up to £50 million at a placing at £1.49p per share, which is uh, works out about a 5% premium to their adjusted NAV. They have actually got a target investment in mind, uh, and after a few days, they actually disclose that that investment is a company called You and Mr. Jones, which is, according to the company's own website, the world's first brand technology group, helping brands do their marketing better, faster and cheaper using technology. So technology probably been a key part of that offering. Um, it's already raised 500 million US dollars, that company, and Marion is looking to or it has actually committed to invest uh, $60 million as part of a £260 million funding round. So they need to raise the cash on the other side. They've actually said that they've had some positive response to their, their funding proposals. And actually, retail investors can participate in this, should they wish, through Primary Bid, uh, which I think is a platform that we've mentioned before. Marion have also uh, made a following investment in another of their existing companies uh, called WeFox, And so now they are actually fully invested. That's good to know. And while we're on this subject of the growth capital sector, we must, I fear, mention the uh, latest news from Schroeder UK Public and Private. That's S-U-P-P, which was the first trust to be into the growth capital sector. There are only three trusts in that sector at the moment. That, of course, was the former Woodford Patient Capital Trust, where there is a process of reconstruction and uh, 
renewal going on there. What's been the story there? What's what's the news from uh, Schroeder UK Public Private this, this week? Well, they announced interim results to the end of June, so that first six months of this year. And in that period, their NAV total return was actually in the negative end, down 8%. But that said, as we know, the market did considerably worse than that. And they benefited from their exposure to technology and healthcare companies. And actually on the latter, uh, a number of involved in uh, the fight to overcome the pandemic. So they had some positive upward adjustments to valuations. Uh, but equally, there were some holdings where their values were reduced, including Atom Bank and rate setters. So financials are still a tough part of the marketplace. But they've also made a partial realisation. They're involved in a company called Oxford Nanopore, which is certainly one that's been in the media this year, again, because of its efforts fighting the coronavirus. But the idea over the longer term, as you as you hinted at, is that the portfolio is, is rebalanced. And that's certainly one of the key objectives of the investment team. They've reduced their debt levels down. It's still above £100 million and equivalent to 25% of net assets. So it certainly was at the end of June. But they're looking ahead and they're making positive sounds. They, they think there'll be some significant operational milestones in the second half of this year. So to your point, they're still trading on probably about a 40% discount um, and still work to be done there by that investment team. Yes, I dare say that it will take some time for investors to uh, perhaps accord a higher rating to this trust until they see evidence of the recovery that the management uh, hopes to put in place. I think it's only fair to say, I mean, Schroeder UK Public Private, when it launched, did target a uh, an annual return north of 10% per annum. And of course, it's unfortunately failed to achieve anything like that. The share price is still way below the issue price uh, when it was launched five years ago. Whereas its two competitors, which is Chrysalis, Merrill and Chrysalin, and She Hallen, the, the Bailey Gifford Trust launched last year, are powering ahead at the moment. So that's what's happening in the growth capital sector. Let's move back then to some results. Uh, perhaps we can move more quickly through these. Let's talk about a trust where there's had a, some disappointing results, one has to say, which is Merchants. What can you tell us about uh, the Merchants announcement? So Merchants had its interim results out for the six months to the end of July. You're absolutely right. Very tough period for this investment trust. NAV total return down 31%, and that compares with a fall of 18% for the FTSE all share there. Share price total return was down 34%, so even worse. Part of the story here is the fact that this is quite a highly geared investment trust. So the actual underlying portfolio return was down 25%. So in other words, worse than the market, but actually it was the impact of gearing that made the returns so disappointing. I'm sure the investment manager, Simon Gogol, who's very experienced, would point out that over the long term, uh, the gearing has been very positive performance and has helped the fund pay quite a high dividend yield. And on that front, actually, uh, dividends for the first six-month period were up just short of 1% year on year, despite the fact that earnings per share were actually down 45%. So it's, again, one of these investment trusts with a tremendous record of consecutive years of dividend increases. It's 38 years it's achieved, uh, and the board is prepared to use revenue reserves to cover uh, any shortfall. So certainly it's enduring a very, very tough year. The investment manager, Simon Gurgle, has been very busy. He's repositioned the portfolio by his own admission. He was set up for a kind of a pro-cyclical bias at the start of the year. To be fair, I think most people were expecting quite a decent year. That's clearly not come to pass, but he's reacted accordingly. Um, and the uh, investment trust is yielding on a historic basis at the moment 7.9%. 
So the yield is, is certainly uh, attractive compared with the wider marketplace. Yes, that is uh, quite a, a remarkable figure in a way. So what is the rating on that fund? What can we say and how does that compare to other trusts in the sector? You'd think with a potential yield of 7% plus that it would, must be trading on quite a big discount, but maybe that isn't the case. It is trading on a little bit of a discount, but actually not too extended. And it has uh, it has widened out a little bit this year. But when you factor in the cost of the debt, it's probably on about a 1-2% discount at the moment. Um, so its rating has slipped a little bit. It was probably around NAV not that long ago. But uh, yes, I think that's a function of the fact that he has a very loyal following and people really appreciate the dividend yield. The question is, can it be sustained? And clearly the board are prepared to use revenue reserves uh, in order to do that. Well, you mentioned an interesting point there about uh, interpreting the discount when there is gearing involved. Perhaps you could just expand on that and just explain to people how that actually works. Uh, it's a sort of mechanical process, I guess, but uh, what is the impact of gearing on discounts? So what is the right figure to think about when you're looking at a trust and you're looking at its discount? Should you make some adjustment for gearing or should you not? The issue is, should you revalue your debt levels to fair value? And the standard now across the industry is to do exactly that. So in the case of merchants, that will bring its uh, NAV down slightly and therefore um, it kind of closes that that uh, discount gap. So invariably, the NAV that most people use now across the industry, it's uh, including income or come income. Uh, with debt at fair value. That is, the, that is the standard. And so then just perhaps to finish that off, when you say fair value, that is basically the price of the debt is determined by what prevailing interest rates, essentially. Is, is that right? That's right. So um, the vast majority of investment trust debt now is not traded. There will be a couple of long-standing debentures floating around the sector, but most of that, frankly, never trades. So again, it's an accounting treatment, but you're looking to value your debt, looking at the way that uh, the, the yield curve has, has moved. So um, particularly where, where, where there's just short-term facilities, so a credit facility where, where um, an investment trustee is just borrowing on a very short-term basis, that doesn't have an impact. But quite often you'll find that loan notes have been issued dating out 10, 20 or even 30 years. And it's repricing that debt, taking into account current conditions that can have an impact on the NAV. And broadly speaking, just to finish that point off, the lower interest rates go, the heavier the burden that the debt becomes if it's uh, at a, any kind of fixed rate. Is, is that what you're saying? Basically, yes, that's correct. Okay, so let's move on then to another trust which has uh, produced some annual results. That is uh, Henderson Eurotrust. I think the results are good, but it's perhaps you could argue at the moment is in the wrong sector. Tell us what's been happening on with Henderson Eurotrust. So Henderson Eurotrust had its annual results out to the end of July. NAV total return above 10%, and that compares with a benchmark return of down 3%. So in other words, quite a significant outperformance in that 12-month period. The share price return was, was 9% as the uh, discount widened out slightly. So this is managed by a chap called Jamie Ross. He took over from um, Tim Stevenson two years ago, and he's actually done a good job for investors. The, the performance record is good. He has, it's probably fair to say, a, a bit of a growth bias, and that's certainly come through this year. The outperformances are down to his stock selection. He talks about the portfolio basically being comprised of compounding kind of quality growth companies and those with the potential uh, for improvement. But what that's meant is that actually the, the revenue um, that the portfolio has generated has fallen and the board have, have made the decision to actually change their dividend policy. So basically the dividend will be cut. They will adopt a progressive dividend instead 
Um, so the dividend will go down. Um, it's just about 19% for this year. It's gone from 31p to 25p. And even that's been supported by revenue reserves. So the board for the next three to four years will pay out to the revenue reserves just to smooth this process. But effectively, it is, it is a progressive dividend from here on in. Uh, just on the rating of these European trusts, that's what I meant by saying perhaps in the wrong sector. I didn't mean it was actually in the wrong sector. I just meant that it's in a sector where uh, investors seem to be disinclined to give trusts who are operating in Europe uh, a good rating. Is that still the case? Europe is out of favour. I mean, there's a range of ratings across the European sector. I mean, Henderson Eurotrust, as I mentioned, is probably about a 10% and the average is 9%. You've got one or two nearer to NAV. The Bailey Gifford European Growth Fund um, trading only on about a 2% discount and the BlackRock Fund on a 5% discount. And both of those do have the strongest track records. But we've seen Alexander Darwell's fund derated this year for reasons that we discussed previously out on a 12% discount. And even relatively mainstream funds like Fidelity European now on an 8% discount as well. And you've even got the JP Morgan funds, JP Morgan European. It's got two share classes, growth and income. Um, they're probably in the mid-teens. So, yeah, a range of discounts. But I think one thing is clear, Europe is out of favour. Let's move on then to the emerging markets where one of the big boys in the sector, if uh, I can put it that way, have just announced their annual results. Uh, I'm talking about JP Morgan emerging markets. What's been the story there? A decent set of results for JP Morgan emerging markets. They had their annual results out to the end of June. Their NAV total return um, was up 3%. And that compares with a decline of half a percent for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Basically, um, stock selection has been very, very strong. I mean, Austin Foray, the manager of this uh, investment trust since 1994, which is a pretty decent uh, length of service now. He talks in the investment manager's report, worth a read, actually. He talks about how things have, have changed in terms of the way that they've approached emerging markets and the trends that they're seeing there. So JP Morgan as a house have built up their team of analysts, 40 analysts now covering emerging market stocks, which he cites as a considerable advantage. But the kind of companies that he's looking at and investing in are very much those who require less capital, offer higher returns, uh, and their sectors such as software services, gaming, consumer brands, internet services. And these are all themes that are pretty familiar now across the marketplace. He's very much about long-term stock picking, uh, the turnover on the portfolio was about 10% in that financial year. So his long-term track record is, is very strong. Indeed it is. Let's move on to a, another trust which operates in emerging markets, though not in the same sector exactly, and that is Pacific Horizon Investment Trust, PHI, uh, which has also just produced some annual results. This is another Bailey Gifford fund, is it not? It is indeed. It's part of the Bailey Gifford stable uh, and in common with any number of the Bailey Gifford funds, it's actually um, enjoying a very good run at the moment. So it announced its annual results to the end of July. Its NAV total return was up 40% in that period and that compares with a 5% increase for its benchmark. Its share price return was actually nearly 58% uh, as they uh, moved from a 7% discount to a 5% premium. So significant re-rating. And what I thought was particularly interesting in, in the results that stock selection has obviously been a key contributor here, but um, there are literally about five or six um, holdings that accounted for nearly 80% of the portfolio's absolute return. So this plays to one of the things that Betty Gifford often discussed about asymmetric returns, about the idea that if you 
managed to select the winners and are prepared to go with those, they are the companies that really drive your long-term returns. And that's certainly been the case for Pacific Horizon this year. So in a sense, because those stocks that performed really well were mostly technology stocks, it sort of mirrors what's been happening in the other Bailey Gifford uh, trusts, uh, and in particular in their US trusts, where they've been able very successfully to ride the huge surge in uh, technology over the last few years. So that's an interesting one. That's in the Asia-Pacific sector, which is, uh, if you like, a subset of the emerging markets uh, sector overall in the AIC classifications. And of course, we still have a number of specific country funds. We've talked about those in recent weeks. And there have been a couple of trusts that operate in India, which have reported this week with rather contrasting uh, performance to tell us about. That's right. So Ashoka India Equity Investment Trust, which was only launched just over two years ago, they had their annual results out to the end of June. Um, Not a bad set of results, all things considered. Their NAV total return was down just 4%, and that compared with a fall of 16% for the benchmark. In share price returns, uh, it was less good, down about 10%, uh, as they were moved from a premium rating to a 5% discount. But again, stock selection was the reason for that relative outperformance, and they've actually managed to grow uh, through the issuance uh, of, of shares at a premium. So not a bad set of results. And they're a little bit stronger than those seen for India Capital Growth Fund, which also reported this week. They had interim results for the six months to the end of June. In that period, their NAV total return was down 20% compared with a benchmark return that was down 11%. So that wasn't an underperformance. And that was largely a result of their exposure to the financial sector. And that resulted in them actually um, selling some of their banking stocks and moving into the gas sector, speciality chemicals and electrical equipment. So again, it's another illustration of the fact that uh, these specialist country funds, they're obviously uh, will behave differently in performance terms to those of uh, the much broader emerging market trusts, which are better diversified across the whole sector. But of course, they can also be very good years. And in fact, Indian trusts had a, a couple of years and they did really well uh, not so long ago. So that's a story developing there in India. Moving on, there have been a lot of further results from the commercial property sector and other property sectors. Uh, the commercial property sector itself has been a bit of a war zone this year, I think it's fair to say. Had a lot of problems there, as we've discussed time and time again. We've heard from a number of trusts this week. I don't think we need to spend a huge amount of time on them, but we can at least repeat the message that it's very much a case of you know, compare and contrast. So if you like the, the diversified commercial property trusts, uh, we've heard from a couple of the BMO funds this week, BMO Commercial Property Trust, BCPT, and BMO Real Estate Investments, which is uh, BREI. And they have been in the centre of the storm, so to speak. And by contrast, we could look at a trust like uh, Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income, uh, which is one of the trusts that is operating in the specialist logistics sector. And I think there have been very contrasting results there, have they not? That's absolutely right. Yes, I mean, the, the mainstream UK commercial property funds have struggled. Uh, their NAVs are down, but actually the share price is, is considerably worse, as we've discussed before. A lot of focus on the rent collection and how they're getting on with that. There are some green shoots, but still some way off the levels that they have been previously. But you're right, the Aberdeen Standard European Logistics, in their interim results to the end of June, their NAV total return was at 4%. So it is still possible to generate positive returns if you're in the right areas within the property sector. And clearly, logistics is not a bad place to be. 
uh, and even for some someone in the more mainstream areas. So we had uh, an announcement this week from Stroda European Real Estate, and they told us that they've actually um, sold an office asset in Paris for over 100 million uh, euros. It's subject to a number of conditions, as you might expect. But effectively, the final sale price will deliver proceeds of around about 70 million euros. And this represents a net profit of 28 million euros for this particular investment company. In NAV terms, that's probably equivalent to an uplift of around about 15%. And unsurprisingly, Schroeder European Real Estate was one of the best performers last week. Um, and I think that just goes to show that even though we, we all can appreciate the problems that the property sector are encountering at the moment, that even in offices uh, or some even in retail property, that these things do ultimately have a, a value. And the fact that the share price would have gone up when this came out uh, would suggest that the market, if you like, had, had not uh, accorded the right value to this particular property, because there's always these two issues out there around the valuation of a property, commercial property company. There's, uh, you know, what the valuation is according to the management of the firm and their advisors who produce the valuations, and what you might actually be able to realize if you sell the property. So there would have been a bit of a disparity there, at least that's the implication of the market movement. Uh, is that right? I think that's absolutely true. So again, we've talked in previous weeks about how UK commercial properties now seem to be getting the, the attention of a number of overseas investors um, not just we're talking about investment companies now, but how people are looking through. And clearly, we know it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for um, possibly a few years. But if you can take a longer term view, then these assets, you know, Paris assets or London assets, these prime commercial property, they've undoubtedly got some value attached to them. OK, so before we go, I'd just like to mention one other trust, which in the past we've rather skirted around because it, I'm afraid to say my fault, I actually thought it was rather small and, and insignificant. But it is an interesting one. Uh, one of the sort of curios that you get in the investment trust sector overall. And that is a trust called Manchester and London. I rather like the pride with which they put Manchester before London. That's obviously uh, an interesting statement about this particular trust. Can you tell us anything about Manchester and London? Or how has that been doing? Uh, why was I wrong to think that it was actually relatively small and, uh, and insignificant? It's been doing rather well, actually. I mean, it's seen its share price uh, return of over 200% over the last five years. And actually, they had their annual results out for the year to the end of July this week. And in that period, they had an NEV total return of about 13%. And that compares with a decline of 20% for the, the wider uh, UK marketplace. And the story here is that the portfolio has been tilted um, a number of years ago. It's run by uh, a couple of gentlemen, Mark Shepherd uh, and Richard Morgan. And Mark Shepherd owns a rather large stake in the company. Um, and according to Bloomberg, about 46% of the share capital is in his hands. Um, and the portfolio was tilted a number of years ago towards technology companies. Uh, and Mark and Richard are incredibly passionate about the, the prospect for technology. And if you look through the list of the names in their portfolio, it's quite clear that uh, these are companies with quite a big future uh, ahead of them. In addition to which, actually, they used hedges uh, at one stage during the year, so back in March, in order to reduce market volatility. And clearly, that was uh, a positive contributor as well. Uh, and they were happy to take those off after that market fall at a profit and redeploy that capital. Yes, looking through the uh, the list of the holdings, I mean, they've certainly, uh, as you might say, got religion in terms of technology. They've made that decision to follow the technology surge and of course they've been absolutely right to do so 
So looking through, they've got Microsoft, Adobe, Salesforce.com, which is a very interesting company, which is attempting to um, digitalize the whole process of sales inside uh, corporations and done extraordinarily well. MasterCard, Visa, the payment companies, Alphabet, that's Google, Facebook, Tencent, I mean, Alibaba and Amazon. I mean, they really do have uh, all the big boys in the technology sector. And uh, as long as that keeps uh, working for them, I guess they'll feel very happy with uh, what they've done. And it's an interesting question, I suppose, whether had not Mark Shepard had such a big holding in the company, whether or not his colleagues would have allowed him to take such a strong view about the value in the technology sector, there would surely have been some pressure to be more diversified and so on. But that's the kind of thing you can do when you are the controlling shareholder in a trust. I guess that's uh, that would be an observation I would make. Would that be would that be reasonable? I think that's a very fair comment. And and uh, Mark is incredibly passionate about technology. In fact, his investor newsletters are, are well worth a read. Actually, they always contain some very good insight and interesting points. And actually, um, he discusses the merits of freshwater swimming as well. His other other great passion that he has. Well, that's splendid. That's I think another advert for the idiosyncrasy that you can sometimes find in the investment trust sector that you won't always find in other parts of the investment universe. I think we're going to finish, uh, Simon, We just one more thing to talk about, and we mentioned that last week, which is to have a quick look back at what's happened to investment trusts over the course of this year. You made some points at the beginning about the uh, diversity of experience. And of course, we, this week we passed the six-month anniversary of the low point in the market back in March at the height of the panic about the potential damage from the coronavirus. And now we can look back and see over that six months, if we had the benefit of foresight as opposed to hindsight, we would have been making some purchases back then, which would have produced some very handsome results. Perhaps you could take us through uh, some of the best performers over the last six months, both in terms of NAV and in terms of share price. Yeah, I don't think it's any great surprise that the Bailey Gifford stable dominate the list. Their best performing uh, investment trust in share price terms is Pacific Horizon that we discussed, uh, and you would have doubled your money if you'd bought those shares in that company six months ago. Um, equally, Bailey Gifford US growth, not too far behind it, up 95% over the last six months. Uh, and obviously, the venerable Scottish Mortgage uh, Investment Trust up 80%, uh, with Bailey Gifford Shinnepon not too far behind it. But away from Bailey Gifford, I mean, there are other investment companies that have performed very well. Actually, one that we discussed earlier, the India Capital Growth Fund, uh, up 120% in the last six months. So it's fair to say that just shortly before that period, their share price had fallen uh, just over 50%. So if we bought at the start of the year, you're probably round trip uh, out and out. But uh, timing is everything, as we know in life. Other investment companies that have done quite well, there are always some slightly more specialist names. Augmentum Fintech uh, is one that we've talked about. They've done very well over the last six months, up 90%. But again, equally, uh, they got quite beaten up back in uh, March time at the time of the market sell-off. Merion Chrysalis, uh, another name that we've, we've talked about today, up nearly 80% over the last six months. But again, they took a bit of a beating back in the, the deer of the market uh, earlier this year. In NAV terms, names that we haven't mentioned, again, there is even more Bailey Gifford funds in there, um, but also some um, investment trusts specialising in, in, in healthcare and biotech growth trust uh, is one in NAV terms is up over 56% uh, over the last six months. So um, a pretty impressive period. And that's obviously without the benefit of any share price re-rating as well. Yes, yeah, so it's very important to look at both what happened before and, uh, as you say, and what happened since. Because if we look at the year-to-date figures, 
we see the the trust that have done well both uh, before and after and i think it's fair to say that a lot of the same names that we've mentioned appear there uh, obviously the bailey gifford trust uh, well featured but also year to date uh, there's quite a few which have done 30 percent or more notwithstanding the sell-off in in march and i can see uh bailey gifford shin nippon j point morgan japanese so the a couple of Japanese trusts have done well, the China trusts have done well, uh, and some of the others we mentioned already. We probably should look at those who haven't done quite so well uh, over the six months. Let's uh, cast down our eyes a little bit before we have a look at some of the names that are down the bottom of the list in terms of share price performance. I mean, they're mostly going to be investment trusts that we haven't talked about because they're mostly specialist trusts which, uh, for whatever reason, have had a bad, bad time. A lot of those are debt funds, I think it's fair to say. But there's a couple of property companies in there inevitably as well. Is there any kind of comments you want to make about that? I mean, DP Aircraft, for example, is right near the top of the list. They're in aircraft leasing, and I think it's probably difficult to think of any worse place to be this year than than in aircraft leasing. Uh, Do you have any comments on on that particular list? No, I think you're spot on. It's the more esoteric investment companies who have uh, struggled this year. Aircraft, clearly. Aircraft leasing, not the place to be. Uh, commercial property, one or two commercial property names in there as well. And that's obviously the pattern over the year to date as well. It's funny, if you look at the year to date, there are a few um, investment trust companies in the UK space uh, that have struggled this year. We've talked about Temple Bar, um, who recently announced a change of manager, but their share price is more than halved year to date. And also Aberforth Split Level Income, which is a geared investment trust, they've also struggled down 57%. But yes, it has been a tough year. I think overall, though, if you look at it on a subsector basis, if you've had your money in investment trusts in, invested in global assets, particularly in the tech and healthcare space, you've probably done quite well. Conversely, if you've backed uh, investment managers who've invested in UK assets, particularly with a value bent, then you've probably struggled, to be fair. Very good. Well, we shall be back next week, as normal, with another edition of the Investment Trust podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to uh, speaking to you again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.